Morning again. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And Luther proposed that the Catholic Church's view of how sins were forgiven, how a person was actually made right with God, was unbiblical, rather than a mix of grace and works that together make us acceptable to God, synergy, as the Catholic Church believes, Luther proposed that a person is actually justified, made right with God, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And he arrived at that conclusion because of what he read in Romans mainly, but also in Galatians, where we spent the last couple months together. And allegedly... This is what it is meant to be Protestant for over 500 years. I don't know that we really believe that. It's not, it's not an accusation against any of you personally, right? It's a statement of concern that has built over the years by listening to preachers and Christians talk about their faith, um, listening to so much of what is written preached in our country, listening to people talk about where they find their identity and their confidence, and listening to people talk about what they believe Jesus accomplished on the cross and or didn't accomplish on the cross, and then just fighting through these things in my own heart and questioning and examining myself as I watched so many that I looked up to for so long drift from grace into salvation by works. And, and even though most of us would would agree uh, as a principle that we're made right with God by grace alone. We live, we talk as though uh, our works are actually how we know that we have been made right with God. That's where we look for assurance. We look to ourselves. And while he was very weird, Martin Luther was really weird, and there, there are um, many things about what he believed that I would, I would certainly take issue with. The church needs more Luthers because the church needs more Pauls. We always have. We always will. And the conviction in, in my heart that pushed me to preach through Galatians for us is that this issue, justification, will always be the most crucial battle the church fights because it's a fight for what the gospel actually is. And the the pagan, horribly pagan, polytheistic, immoral Roman Empire was never the greatest concern of the apostles. The drift of the culture, there was no drift. It had already arrived in a cesspool of immorality was never the major concern of the apostles, the founders of the church. The purity of the gospel was the major, almost exclusive concern of the apostles. That that makes me believe, that makes me believe it it has to be mine. It has to be mine. I'm I'm not going to improve on the apostles. I'm not going to take the church further than the apostles. I, I, I do not have the ability to do that. 
That's what moves me. During our series through Galatians, I referenced a certain parable of Jesus several times. It's probably his most famous parable, maybe the, the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning in Luke 10. And, and I, I, I think the way that we generally speaking interpret this parable, the way we teach it and use it is a perfect example of our tendency to believe deep down in our hearts where it's quiet and dark and nobody else is listening that what really makes us right with God is our behavior. That's what makes God approve of us is how much and what we're doing for Him. So, yes, we're saved by grace, but whether or not God really loves us, whether or not, I mean, He, he loves us, right? Whether or not we stay in God's good graces, whether or not He will really welcome us on that final day really depends on our works, how much we do for Him. So I thought it might be appropriate to dig in here as a final word from this series before we begin our series next week, God willing, through Hebrews. And my prayer is that if this is you, if assurance is where you are struggling, that our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, will himself enable you to believe and rest in him through the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I, I, I think the two conversations at the end of Luke 10 make this abundantly clear. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 10? I'll start out by reading 25 to 37, but we'll work our way through the rest of the chapter by the time we're done. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? He's talking to one man who desires to justify himself. Which of these three do you think? Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son and for your spirit. And I pray that you would hold me up and enable me to preach. And I pray you would enable everyone in this room to hear your son speaking in this text. 
and not me. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The parables of Jesus were always shocking. Uh, Daniel Emery Price said that parables were a way that Jesus taught in order to scandalize our self-sufficiency. So an, an expert in the law, not that you know, of course not a, a constitutional lawyer or something, but an expert in knowing and guarding Mosaic law, decided he wanted to test Jesus, which is always, always a good idea, right? He stands up and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is not honest, right? They wanted to trap him in the law. They want to hear Jesus say something wrong or illegal so they can arrest him, get rid of him. This man believes that you gained eternal life by obeying the law. He wants Jesus to reveal that he disagrees with that because they've been listening to him. And this grace stuff and welcoming sinners stuff seem to say that God might save you irrespective of the law. You know, God might welcome people who don't obey all the law. And Jesus knows the man is trying to play him. So he answers with a question of his own in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So you're the expert in the law. You tell me what a person must do to inherit eternal life. And the guy, of course, gives the right answer in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You see... The Shema is, is front-loaded, right? The, the main focus is on the way you should love God. And there's one sentence about loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells him that's right in verse 28. And, and it was according to the law, absolutely. So Jesus says to him, do that and you will live. Exactly. Because that's how the law works. But this is what we've been studying for, for 12 weeks. You obey it, you live. Paul quoted that. That's from Leviticus 18.5. He quoted that in Galatians 3.12. The one who does them, the works of the law, all that the law commands, all that the law commands, you do those and you live. If you don't perfectly obey the law, because that's what it demands, you die. So, yes, you want to be made right with God by your behavior? Fair enough. Just all you have to do is love God perfectly, with your whole self and love your neighbor perfectly as you love yourself all the time and you will live. You'll have eternal life. No problem. Now this expert in the law is trying to show Jesus that he lives like this. And what's amazing is is the line of his questioning doesn't address the front part, the majority of the command at all. Have you ever noticed that? So apparently loving God perfectly all the time, that must be totally doable, right? He's not worried about whether or not he does that. Do you see that? Right? There's, there's no question. You can measure love for God by things. You can obey the various laws as much as you can. You can give your tithes, all of them, a lot more than 10%. You can say your prayers. The man's question back is going to reveal everything here. He's, he's so arrogant and confident in his behavior that he doesn't even worry about proving whether or not he loves God perfectly. That's never where the question comes from. He knows that if there's a problem, if somebody can doubt whether or not he obeys the law perfectly, it's going to be in the second part in proving how much you love your neighbor. Which is why from his perspective, we get verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself... 
You, you see that. Wanting to prove that he had made himself right with God by the way he has treated his neighbor. He has obeyed the command. He wants to show that neighbor... See, that's technically a little hard to define. So we can't get too strict on saying you have to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's, it's hard to identify just exactly who your neighbor actually is, right? Beloved, the whole text from here to the end of chapter 10, from here to the end of chapter 10, which is why Luke structures it this way when he wrote it, is Jesus' very specific response, very specific response to this man's desire to justify himself by his works. And it is also this morning in Moundsville, West Virginia, at Moundsville Baptist Church, Jesus' response to every human being that wants to justify themselves by their behavior. To get justification before Almighty God by living well enough. That's the point here. It has always been the point here. And it must, therefore, inform the application of the most popular parable, probably, that Jesus ever told. Jesus' response to, and who is my neighbor, is a story in verses 37, he, 30 to 37. So he takes up the question. And notice that he didn't just define the word neighbor. That would have been very easy to do. He didn't do that. So that's not what is at issue here. Remember, Jesus is having a conversation with what's in the heart of other people, not just what they're saying. He's talking, he sees inside. He knows exactly. So he doesn't, the issue is not defining the word neighbor here. That's cheap, right? That cheapens God's holy and perfect law. It cheapens it. Jesus is going to evangelize this man, I think. He's either telling the story to speak into the man's life and awaken him from his delusion and or he is telling it to further harden the man's heart. If we would be going through Luke, we'd see that. That's what the revealing work of Jesus does in verses 21 through 24 of this chapter. It hides or it reveals. Jesus tells a story that so proves how impossible it is to love your neighbor, to obey the law as God intended, that if we were being honest with ourselves, when we come to the end of it, we should put our Bibles down and say, there is no way I can do that. Since this man wanted to justify himself, Jesus attempted to show him that self-justification through works was impossible. The word Samaritan doesn't mean to us what it would have meant to Jesus' audience. It, it actually, in our culture, has more of a positive Connotation, right? The wonderful organization Samaritan's Purse. That's a charitable organization doing work uh, in, in the name of Christ for the poor and the needy all around the world. Samaritan's Purse, right? That's a, and I, I think that's wonderful. So it has a, a very positive connotation to us. There are good Samaritan laws. That's literally what they're called on the books in several states. Uh, they get that from this, that if, if you bypass somebody in certain circumstances in need of help or ignore it, you could actually get in trouble. You could at least get fined. And so for us, it has more of a positive connotation. Jewish people, at least in that time, did not think of the word Samaritan in a positive light. You would have been hard-pressed to find a word they found took more negatively than the word Samaritan. Why? Way back in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and took the Israelites away to captivity 
foreign peoples moved in and they began to intermarry and set up their religion. And so you had this kind of half-Jewish, half-Gentile person that developed and built their own temple, their own culture. They didn't worship in Jerusalem anymore. They didn't accept any of the Hebrew Bible except the first five books, uh, uh, the, the Pentateuch. That's all they took as Scripture. Those were Samaritans to Jewish people. They, they were the worst of the worst. I'm not stretching, you know, embellishing here. They were absolute garbage to them, uh, to put it lightly. So Jesus saying Samaritan in Israel would have had the same reaction as Jesus saying, member of ISIS, that I, you know, I'm trying to think of in America right now. You, you would think Jesus would say, though, in his story, that it was a Jewish person who helped a Samaritan, but he doesn't do that. He has the Jewish people in the story, the ones that are Jews, unloving and victimized in the story. And the Samaritan is the one who actually does what the law says. Right? Why would Jesus do that? So that Israel would know they had not obeyed the law well enough to get God to accept them. And they are in desperate need of a Savior. And the only one able to do it is the one they absolutely despise and reject. So Jesus identifies himself to wake them up as the Samaritan here. As what they hate, but what they so desperately need in order to expose the depth of their lostness and their need. They think they are loving God and loving their neighbors when the demand of the law, the actual extent to which the law must be obeyed, has burdened them, along with the devil, the ultimate thief, and has beaten them down and left them for dead on the side of the road in the blood of their own pathetic works righteousness, in need of someone to stop and help them. They have no hope. The problem is, as pictured in this man, is exemplified in this man, one of the leaders of Israel. So you know that's what's being taught. Their attempts at obedience, their effort has made them think they don't need a Savior. They want to justify themselves. The expert in the law knew nothing of salvation. He didn't see that he was the one beaten alongside the road. The law has beaten him. It's too holy It's left him for dead because he doesn't perfectly follow it. But instead, he's punch drunk with his own righteousness. He actually thinks he does keep the law. But he had to dumb it down to do it. It's what we always have to do if we want to say it's keepable. You've got to dumb it down. I mean, who's, who's my neighbor, really? I mean, I can't help everybody. Right, you're not Jesus. Neither am I. So Jesus says to him, which one of these three men was actually what God intended when he commanded you to love your neighbor as yourself? That's what Jesus is asking. right? Remember the question here. Which one did that, loved his neighbor as himself for this beaten and dying man? Which one knelt down and cared for him, treated his wounds, put him on the back of his own donkey so he had to walk and then he paid for his healing everything for it. He bore the expense of the beaten man's victimhood for him. Because that is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That is what God intended when He made the the command. And He can't even bring Himself to say the word, really. Right? He basically says, oh, the third one. Right? It's like He can't even say, the Samaritan obeyed the law. And Jesus says, yeah, 
So go and live like that, and you'll have eternal life. That's what that's why verse thirty seven and verse twenty eight look so similar. Right? They're they're bookends. That's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is saying to the man that wanted to justify himself. Beloved, the point of this parable is not that we should just be a little more kind when we have time to help suffering people when we notice them. Because that's how we apply it. We believe the point of it was go and do likewise. Do we? I mean, occasionally. Maybe. I mean, you see what we've done? We just, oh yeah, go and do likewise. I do that. I do likewise as much as I can. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the point of the parable. You know, when you, when you have a minute, do this, basically the same kind of thing. The church absolutely is called to care for and take broken people to Jesus, but this text does not allow us to so cheapen the point of this parable to something like just be a little nicer and more helpful to suffering people. No. No, the, The point is a hammer blow to everyone who honestly believes that just by trying to be as nice and as charitable as you can to those who are hurting, you will actually make yourself right and be approved by an eternal, self-sufficient, holy God. That really, we, really the law, obviously he's not going to expect you to follow it completely, so let's Let's simplify it, and then we'll label whatever good we happen to do when we have time, money, or notice it. We'll label that, yeah, you're supposed to go and do likewise. The parable is meant to beat us, and strip us, and leave us bloody on the side of the road, in our pathetic works righteousness, Because it's only there in our helplessness and in our bloodiness that the true good Samaritan is passing by. Jesus is not teaching ethics here. Alright? He's not teaching behavior. They've had that. They've had that. He's not recapitulating it. He is addressing Something very specific here. The lawyer's desire to justify himself before God with his behavior. Listen, our desire to justify ourselves by doing things is precisely what the parable is after. Right? We, we don't listen to our Savior. Our desire to just do. Because, you know, it says go and do likewise. Can you do what this demands? It's just a desire to justify ourselves. And the only thing that's going to root that out is the gospel. Every time the law, the word of God, commands us, its primary function is to leave us bankrupt and dying on the side of the road so that we'll realize the only hope we have for God to accept us is not that we can somehow, with our best effort, come close to meeting the mark. The point is that if I don't come by and save you from the demand of the law and the demand of a holy God, you will never have eternal life. He is too holy. He is too good. His law is too high. He isn't just taking good deeds as some type of payments on a loan. 
He's better than that, beloved. He's higher than that. He's holier than that. We need somebody that can obey the law, that can, that can really love us to pass by and, and like, like take our debt on himself. And Jesus is the only one who has ever done it perfectly all the time. When our first response to Jesus is, all right, just tell me what to do, we're thinking just like the lawyer. That's how he got here. Right? He, he didn't see it for what it was. He took it as purely an invitation, a challenge. And that is why, beloved, Luke includes this next little section here. It's so crucial. If the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan was our behavior, the next section not only makes no sense, it completely contradicts it. The whole point of the next section is to keep us from making the parable of the Good Samaritan about our need to make sure when we can, we do charity work. Social justice is not the point here. Justification is the point here. Let me read 38 to 42. Now, you see how it picks up? No break. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, because of course she would, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, (laughs) you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Really? Really? Just one thing? Yeah. Yeah. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What was Martha distracted from in verse 40? We know what she was distracted by, right? Her much serving. But what was that distracting? What was her serving distracting her from? Listening to Jesus. This is not a throwaway moment here. Jesus is gently rebuking Martha. Right? You always know when, when, when human beings just are not aware when Jesus is in their presence because they'll actually walk up to him and gripe. Like, like this is the son of God. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Come here. Hey, my sister, did you see her? Right? Did you see her over there not doing? I'm doing. She's not doing. Do you love me? Do you love her? I don't know. Right? Right, this is the Son of God. Right? Unbelievable. What, what is she doing? What is she doing? She's trying to show the Lord how much she loves Him through serving. Doing. She is attempting to justify herself through her service, through work. How do we know that? Because she isn't happy and contented and joyful and free. Because she's serving, she's mad 
that her service, her, me, Martha, is not being noticed, not being complimented, not being assisted. When we find our identity in serving Jesus instead of knowing Jesus, we will always feel rushed and pressured and guilty and behind and lacking under pressure. It makes no sense if the yoke is easy and the burden is light. It makes no sense. Jesus is not complimenting her service. Doesn't he notice what she's doing for him? Martha is upset because Mary is not helping her with her much serving. Because people that won't rest at the feet of Jesus can't let anybody else rest at the feet of Jesus. More, 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 more. Do, do, do. And you too. Being worried and upset about work not getting done is not automatically evidence that we really love the Lord. It's evidence, more likely, that we are unable to just sit at His feet. We can't do it. And people say, right, because I'm a doer. It's just hard for... You're a human being. We're all doers. We're all doers by nature. We're all doers by nature. Yes, we're all Martha and the lawyer here by nature. That's why we've got into our minds that you have to be serving. And by the way, let me define what that means. I'll tell you. The the church government will tell you what it means to serve. You do those things or you're not faithful, right? Right. The work of the church being fruitful by God's standards doesn't depend on our working and serving and ideas and intuition. It depends on how much time we spend at the feet of Jesus. Of course that's counterintuitive. Of course it is. Yeah, I mean, really, you have to be serving. Yeah, when Martha's run the place, yeah, everybody better shape up. Because it looks like, it looks like Jesus is saying here that Mary has chosen the thing that actually shows she loves Jesus. While Martha was missing Jesus in the name of serving Jesus. We aren't the be all end all here. Just because when Jesus walked into her house, she felt obligated to do for him does not mean that's what honors him. And it doesn't obligate him to recognize it. Do we see everything that's at play here? No, this, I just want to do this for you. I'm not asking you to do that for me. She just sit down. Just sit down and listen. Jesus is in the room. Think about what Luke is doing here. Why did he place this scene right after this parable? Because what is the immediate, normal response to the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus said, go and do likewise. So we have to get out there and be good Samaritans of the world, get busy, let's get serving. Do you, do you see how that turns the whole point of the text on its head? Just rips it out of its context, out of its place. This text is about justification. This text is not about good deeds. This text is about justification. We were meant to walk away from the parable of the Good Samaritan thinking, how can I be justified then? 
If that's how I gain eternal life, how am I going to be justified? I don't love God perfectly. And I certainly don't love my neighbor as much as I love myself. That's why I can't stand most of my neighbors. So what am I going to do? I don't know my new neighbors yet. There's not a comment on my new neighbors in Glendale. If any of you hear this online, or you know people, I'm not talking about you. It's a metaphor. In context, the point is not, all right, let's go and do likewise. The point is, how can I be justified then? Right? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. They're they're not different. Right? Beloved, salvation is not God lowering the bar. It's God meeting His own standard through His own Son. Because that's what a holy God requires. Because nobody else can meet it. Nobody. Going and doing likewise is not necessary to be justified. One thing is necessary to be justified, to be made right with God. And what is it? To listen to and believe what Jesus is saying. That's verse 39. Luke wasn't thinking when he got to the verse 37, well, man, I have all these notes here. What do I do with all these leftover paragraphs about the life of Jesus that I've written? I guess I'll put the one about Mary and Martha, I'll put it here and I'll link in chapter 10 a little bit. No. There's a reason it's here. There's a reason it's here. The occasional good deed for suffering people, when we happen to notice, is not the point of this parable. That's how the neighbor, the lawyer defined loving his neighbor. Right? Just, you know, I, I, as nice as my, as I can be, when I, you know, when I, but I mean, who is my neighbor? In other words, he realizes, I, you can't love everybody like that. Instead of that making him go, so you have to save me, it makes him go, well, so I'll just dumb it down a little bit. I'll just, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just love a few people the best that I can. And God, you know, He appreciates my best. And no, baloney. No, no, He doesn't. Can we, no, He doesn't. My goodness. The expert in the law didn't take the law seriously enough. The kind of love for neighbor that God required is what the Samaritan does in this story. Experts in the law seldom do take the law seriously enough because they're out there teaching you can obey it if you try hard enough. Do we, do we see what's happening here, beloved? The, if we focus, if, if we focus on the work of the kingdom, we'll start to define what is worth our time because we realize there's so much to do and we'll become like this lawyer and Martha justified in ourselves because really we've done the best that we can. Why don't we realize that it is only at the feet of Jesus that we're going to ever be able to do what He sends us out to do? It's not that nothing needs to get done. Beloved, we would balk to say the least if we saw the actual list of what needs to be done There are still, in our world in this moment, there are still over 6,000 unreached people groups with the gospel. They've never heard the name of Jesus. They have no idea He exists. This doesn't count the amount. There are actually unreached people groups in our own country 
if you define them that way, they're out there. Like, did you know at one time, inner city Cleveland, I don't know if it still is or not, was marked as, a, as an unreached people group. That's how little witness for Jesus there was in inner city Cleveland. It's four hours away. I mean, there's too much work. And we're all just, just dumbing it down like if I occasionally do a good deed, God will accept me. Oh, beloved. It, 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 there's a ton of work to get done. The point is not that there's nothing to get done. The point is that if we think we're going to justify ourselves with it, have you noticed? Why are there that many unreached people groups? Because we think we can justify ourselves by our works, so we just focus on ourselves and our own little greenhouses, our own little way of life, our own little names. We forget the world is out there because we're minding our own business. It, it, it hasn't worked. Saying to people, you better go and do likewise. It hasn't worked. Nobody's going and doing likewise. Jesus went and did likewise. Jesus did it. So who's, who else's feet would I want to sit under if there's still work to be done? If I can't justify myself by my own works, whose feet do I want to sit at but His? If, if this is the kind of love that is required of me, every time I see someone in need... Forget the fact that I, that, forget the first part of it, that I haven't loved God perfectly either. I will never inherit eternal life. Because I'll never be able to do it. And, and when we think that, well, God, God approves of, you know, my effort to love Him, He sees that for what it is because He sees my heart. The fact that God sees your heart is the most terrifying fact in the universe. Right? Beloved, it's not, we don't decide what it means to love God perfectly. You know, I mean, I mean, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, they tried. They got obliterated, but they tried. Martha exemplifies the one who walks away from the Good Samaritan, completely missing the point of what Jesus was teaching. We can't go and do likewise, not to that extent, not as much as it is required. We've never loved anyone to the extent that the law requires. We only love ourselves that much. That's why Jesus, that's why the law uses the self amazingly as the referent for how I want you to love your neighbor. If you just loved your neighbor as, uh, as much as you loved yourself, the world would be a very happy place. Beloved, feel this morning the weight of the law. Feel it. We have to love everyone like this. Who is our neighbor? Everyone. Everyone. I've never loved God enough and I've never loved my neighbor enough to inherit eternal life. So I can work and volunteer and serve until I'm blue in the face. If that's my goal, all it will do is make me self-righteous about the fact that I'm serving like Martha and mad at everybody else for not being as committed as I am like Martha. When Mary, the one that was content at the feet of Jesus, had chosen the portion that will not be taken away from her. What is Jesus saying to Martha at the end of verse 42? But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. If you try to justify yourself by your service, Martha, you're going to lose everything. It's no accident 
that we have on the lips of the true Good Samaritan himself here, after what he has just said, you go and do likewise. Now what is he saying? It's not an accident. One thing is necessary. For what in context? Justification. In verse 37, the knife goes in. We need a Savior. And in verses 38 to 42, we're given one. In these two conversations, we discover that Jesus alone makes us right with God by His saving work as the Good Samaritan and by His sustaining word as Mary's portion. He's everything for us or He's nothing for us. The parable isn't there to make us feel guilty about not giving money to poor people or caring for those who are suffering. No, it's, it's, it's designed to make us feel guilty for not loving God or our neighbors perfectly and still thinking we can justify ourselves before God with our works so that, so that we will run to the one, clamor to get to his feet, who alone can provide forgiveness for those sins in order that we might actually inherit eternal life. And I guarantee you, the poor and the needy will be served at the same time. We need more Marys and less Marthas, right? I, 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 I don't want you to be busy. I don't want you, for what it's worth, I don't want you distracted by serving. Don't define yourself by your many tasks. Just sit down at the feet of Jesus I have no doubt that the work God wants to get done will get done when that's where we stay. And listen, if, if, if just wanting to sit down at the feet of Jesus needed a warning, if it needed some kind of nuance to make sure we didn't take advantage of it, where is it? Jesus didn't nuance. Right? Because what was on the line was life and death. Every time He spoke. All he does here is dignify Mary for just sitting there and not working because he is in the room. So I, my opinion is that a lack of the church being the church doesn't really come from a lack of ideas about knowledge or about application. I, I think it comes from not believing that Jesus is who justifies us. Right? I mean, just because a church might be big or busy does not mean that church is resting in the gospel. It could mean the exact opposite. Doesn't mean it does, but it could. It's very hard for lifelong religious people, like, like most, at least for a long time, Americans, hardworking people, to see their need for someone else's righteousness to be the thing that makes them right with God. That's why we're so neurotic. When we're like that, we don't think it's hard work that needs to be done. We think we lack the right instructions. If you give me the right instructions, I'll be able to follow Jesus well. No. If you sit at His feet, you'll be able to follow Jesus well. Our hope is never going to be found in being the Good Samaritan. Our hope is in needing the Good Samaritan. Why can't we just sit down and listen to Jesus? Why is that such a hard sell in the church? Why? Like You're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. All throughout this section, Jesus is answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
pray that someone will pass by and have mercy on you. And then would let you, after all that, sit at their feet for the rest of your life. Right? I mean, who else would you want to go to but to be near to the one that saved you? So, I know there's a ton of work to be done. I, I just, I don't want you to get the work. I, I want you to sit at the feet of Jesus. Because it's there at the feet of Jesus that we'll be moved to act by the Holy Spirit and not by the self-justifying needs that ourselves and others lay on us and then try to sanctify as though they're coming from God. Jesus alone makes us right with God by His saving work and by His sustaining word. Sit at His feet. Listen, He is the answer to all our questions. I know it doesn't seem like it. I know, I know it doesn't seem like it. I know the cry of the human heart. I've been there too. You aren't answering my question though. I've been there. I understand. I understand. At least as a principle. But, but he's either that or he's a liar. He's either the way, the truth, and the life, all of it in himself, or he's a liar. Those are our options. And he's not a liar. Let God be true. And every man found to be a liar. That's what we are. It's not what he is. Do you want to be made right with God this morning? Do you want to be made right with God? All right. It's really easy. Come to the feet of Jesus. All you who are weary and heavy laden, beaten and bloodied by the devil and this world and the law. And our Lord Jesus will heal you completely. Completely. There's not an exception in this room this morning. And he'll do it all at his own expense. He'll pay for everything. And He'll walk the path. You just lay there and get healed. I'm going to pray for us. I'll be down front. If anyone needs to come and pray for any reason as we sing, if you'd like to join our church, if you've believed upon the Lord and you'd like to be baptized, we invite you to come forward. Just let me know this morning. Let me close this in prayer. Father, We thank you this morning, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would make yourself clear in the hearts and minds in this room. Lord, I pray that we would have our spirits trained to listen to the Spirit testify to us the truth about Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for those in here that didn't come in here this morning believing that you were their Savior, that Jesus Christ had paid the price for sins to be forgiven, that he had gifted his righteousness, all of it, to all who believe. But Lord, may they not walk out still disbelieving. Turn our eyes to you. Turn our eyes to you. And let us sit down at the feet of our Savior. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
so much for being here this morning, everybody. Let me close us in prayer and you'll be dismissed. We'll gather again tonight at 6.30. You're all welcome to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your truth. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, you are perfect and holy. There's no one like you. There's no one beside you. And you sent your son to save us, Father. We ask and pray these things. And thank you for them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please watch over everyone here. Pray in his name. Amen. Amen.